Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we may hear your word with joy. Amen. The Old Testament reading for today comes from the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. My child, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and abundant welfare they will give you. Do not let loyalty and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them round your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and of people. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not rely on your own insight. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be a healing for your flesh and a refreshment for your body. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. From there he set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice, but a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. This is the word of the Lord. Today is the first Sunday of Lent, as many of you know, or perhaps should know by now. Lent is a liturgical season where we humble ourselves, we repent, and we reflect on starting our life in Christ anew. It encourages us to take a self-inventory and evaluate whether we need to go in a different direction or consider another perspective. The Gospels often use the Greek word metanoia for repent. Metanoia means changing or turning one's mind and heart. It's a reconsidering an opening to the freedom of new possibilities. So as some of you may know, I grew up in the state of Colorado. And Colorado is a state with the eighth largest Latino, or Latinx, which is the gender neutral term that some people prefer today. But Colorado has the eighth largest Latinx population in the entire US. So for me, growing up as a white person among people of Latinx background was nothing new to me. I had quite a few Latinx friends and classmates, and I even attended a good friend's coming-of-age quinceanera celebration. So when my father remarried Angel, a Latina, when I was a sophomore in college, I already thought I knew everything about Latinx culture. 
My family and Angel's family's blending was a blending in all the typical ways. Home practices, social norms, parenting expectations, social and political and religious beliefs. I know for any of you out there that have step families and blended families, you know how all of that goes. You know how hard it can be. But for my family, it was also a blending of race and culture because Angel and her daughters are Mexican-American. My own personal experience of the blending of our families was a humbling one. It made me realize the limitations of my own categories for other people. Like some sophomores in college, I thought I was so enlightened. But really, I was a wise fool. Classes had taught me about social inequities in our nation, inequities that often hit racial minorities the hardest. And I thought I knew everything about ethnic minorities, political and religious values. Minorities were the rhetorical pawns I used to be more persuasive, or at least so I thought, more persuasive in my own political arguments. For example, I used them to argue that our country needed a higher minimum wage and that neighborhoods shouldn't be so segregated by race. I had been taught things about minority experiences in America and how race and class intersect, and then my stepfamily taught me differently. I was, of course, wrong in assuming I knew everything about them already. I didn't know what their values were until I got to know them. They weren't Democrats like I thought they'd be, nor were they Catholic like many of my Latinx friends and classmates growing up. Over the years, I became more and more aware of how I needed to be more open to letting them speak for themselves, to recognizing their full humanity. It was a shift the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber describes in his book, I and Thou, as moving from thinking of others as an it, an object, to thinking of them as a thou, without judgment, qualification, or objectification. Through getting to know my stepfamily better, I was humbled and forced to become more aware of my own prejudices, assumptions, and the categories I had created for people. I'd use my categories to bolster my own agenda and perspective. And my stepfamily schooled me, not in a hostile sense, of course, but in the sense that I learned so much more through real-life experience than I did in a classroom. In our Bible story today, Jesus was similarly schooled by the Syrophoenician woman. Jesus' reaction makes us uncomfortable. It doesn't match our image of Jesus as warm, tender, compassionate, merciful, and perfect. Instead, it gives us a different picture of him. The Jesus here has been called impatient, ethnocentric, reactive, and conforming to the biases of his own culture. Was he joking with the Syrophoenician woman here? Maybe, but maybe not. And if not, what are we supposed to make of these two images of Jesus that seem so incredibly different? Jesus left the land of the Jews to venture into Gentile territory, and then he entered a house and hid there. Somehow, a Syrophoenician woman heard about Jesus. Mark described this woman as Syro because her homeland was currently the Roman province of Syria, and he described her as Phoenician because she descended from the Phoenician people, the ancient inhabitants near the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. There was a history of tension between the Israelites and the people of Phoenicia. 
Some of the Israelites were intimidated by them because their port cities like Tyre had powerful ships and wealthy merchants. They were also labeled as Canaanites. And as we know, there is a lot of conflict between Canaanites and Israelites, and they often battled for land. So this woman, this Syrophoenician woman, came to him in hiding to talk to him. She asked him to heal her daughter by casting out her demon. He responded by implying that her people, the Gentiles, were like dogs. There was a common belief among some, not all, but some first century Jews, that Gentiles were dogs and unclean. So that is what Jesus is talking about here. Jews were the children of God, the chosen ones, and Gentiles were the dogs or second class in the household of God. I don't know about you all, but for me, it's hard to imagine Jesus saying something this harsh. But in the story in Matthew's gospel, it's not even a matter of order. Matthew's gospel tells a story a little bit different than our scripture in Mark today. In, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, I was, only, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He was insinuating that Gentiles were never welcome in the household of God. It would have been understandable for the Syrophoenician woman to leave stunned or defeated at this point, but she didn't miss a beat. She said, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She helped him understand God's larger plan for salvation. God wanted to save not only Jews, but also Gentiles. Jesus seemed to experience a change of heart, a softening of his previous assumptions. He then said, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. Jesus changed his mind to see her as more human. Only then is her daughter healed. The physical healing of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter wasn't possible until Jesus was willing to heal his own prejudices against her. God challenged him to see his mission as larger than he realized when Jesus no longer saw the Syrophoenician woman as a category, but as a real person, there was also some important healing between their two ethnic groups. There are so many aspects of Jesus in this story that are hard to wrap our minds around, that are just so messy. What do we make of Jesus here? The temptation has often been to clean up this image of Jesus, to excuse his behavior, a behavior that feels all too human. But maybe these difficult, messy aspects of his humanness are parts we can all relate to. Our human nature can be so prone to making snap judgments and assumptions in our haste and fear. Jesus had a change of heart and mind. He recognized the human complexity of this woman, of her situation, and who she was and especially the complexity of her spirituality and faith. He saw that even she could have great faith in God. This story isn't the only story we see in Scripture of a divine change of heart. We often think of God as unchanging and immutable, but there are also Old Testament stories where God seems to have a human-like characteristic of changing one's mind. For example, Moses convinced God not to destroy all the Israelites after they made a golden cow to worship. Also, Noah found favor with God and convinced him not to destroy all life on earth. 
In these stories, God's desire to stay in relationship with humankind was stronger than the frustration and temptation to destroy. God meets us where we are. And in Jesus, the incarnation of God, we see the clearest example of God's desire to connect to us, to enter the messiness of human life. During Jesus' earthly ministry, God continually revealed Jesus' mission to him. And God did this through other people, through the Syrophoenician woman in this story. Jesus had to be open to his father's leading and speaking to him. According to Mark's gospel, Jesus already knew that physical healing was a crucial part of his mission and ministry. But through the Syrophoenician woman, God helped Jesus realize that healing involved much more than just physical healing, that it also had a social component, and that he had to give people back their dignity and worth. God still uses other people and their stories to challenge us to reconsider and to grow. A friend of mine is the director of a ministry in Denver called Casa de Paz, or House of Peace. Casa de Paz offers housing, meals, and transportation to families who have been separated by immigrant detention. It also serves as a hospitality house for people who have just been released from the immigrant detention center while they make plans to get home to their families. This ministry uses a variety of volunteers from different churches in the greater Denver area. One of their recent volunteers was someone we'll call Susan. Susan had been wanting to volunteer at Casa de Paz for a while, but she was afraid of what her husband would think about it. He held the negative view of immigrants that we often see in the news, that they were a bunch of unsavory characters with little to nothing to offer our country. Susan finally mustered the courage to volunteer at the Casa. Her first night volunteering there, she met two men who had come from the immigrant detention center. One was a man seeking asylum who had to flee from his home country because of persecution. The other man was a family man, someone who had lived in the U.S. for decades and who had children who were born in the U.S. During her time at the Casa that night, Susan got to know these men and heard all about their lives. Susan was shocked by the stories she heard, and she experienced her own heart transformation. When she got home, she shared these stories of these men and how they'd been treated by the U.S. government with her husband. He was also shocked by their suffering, and he too experienced a change of heart about immigrants and refugees in the U.S. Like Jesus seeing the full humanity of the Syrophoenician woman and her daughter, Susan and her husband came to see that immigrants, whether they had recently migrated or their families had migrated decades ago, were just as human as they were and just as deserving of human respect and dignity. God had called them to recognize some things they didn't see before and to let go of some of their previous categories and ideas about people. We often discriminate against other people when we don't see them as being like us. So then the initial act of healing is asking God to help us see everyone as God's beloved children, as human in the same way that we are. Our faith calls us to work for reconciliation in this way. When the Syrophoenician woman stood up for herself, she was actively working to bridge this gap of inequality to work for reconciliation between her people and Jesus' people. 
and that inequality stemmed from a belief that some were more deserving of God's grace and salvation than others. She reminded Jesus that her people were also made in the image of the divine God and that God's grace was big enough to cover them too. Healing in this story was as much about Jesus seeing and then removing the social barriers as it was about Jesus casting out the demon. Do overcoming social barriers really matter for one's well-being and health? A Purdue psychology professor seems to think so. Dr. Kipling D. Williams believes that social forces, like ostracism and exclusion, can hurt someone more than a physical injury. When a person is ostracized, that part of the brain that registers physical pain also feels it. Social isolation and loneliness are said to be more hazardous to people's health than obesity and smoking. So we have to consider the dimensions of isolation, alienation, and ostracism if we are going to deeply engage in this ministry of healing that Christ calls us to. Seeing someone's full humanity makes us take seriously the dynamics of isolation and alienation. This healing is as messy for us as it was for Jesus. Like Jesus, God uses other people, often unexpected people, to ask us to turn, to reconsider, to change our minds, to practice metanoia. Lent challenges us to examine the messiness of practicing healing in Christ's name. Healing is messy because it often calls us to do the hard work of reconciliation. It nudges us to look seriously at our assumptions and actions and reflect on whether they work for healing, and particularly the healing work of reconciliation, or if they don't. Are we allowing those voices who have been silenced in the past to ring forth, or are we silencing them, filtering them, and using them for our own agenda? Are we careful about the words we use towards and about others, using words that empower instead of demean or reinforce stereotypes? Are we challenging ourselves to be in spaces where we are the minorities in terms of race, class, or other things that can make us feel more comfortable? In what ways can we do more? One of the very first and most important announcements in Jesus' ministry comes to us earlier in Mark chapter 1. Now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Change your hearts and lives and trust this good news. The good news is that all races and people are a part of God's story of salvation. God is calling us to be open to seeing things we didn't see before, to recognizing that the mission and task God is calling us to may actually be bigger and messier than we think. So we have to be open to the Spirit's leading and guiding and be willing to reconsider. This call of Lent, this challenge of metanoia, truly is good news. Sometimes we think of Lent as beating ourselves up for past mistakes or regret for sin. But it's meant, this call to repent is meant to be good news because it gives us freedom from things holding us back from healing and reconciliation. It encourages us to be more aware, freeing each of us from ideas and false assumptions we have about each other. It forces us to move into a new relationship with one another, one where we acknowledge that we're united in Christ, fully and truly. 
So may we trust in this good news and proclaim it aloud with our lives, words, and actions. Amen. Almighty God, you made us who we are, and we offer all of ourselves to you. Take our talents, our energy, and our joy, and use us to share your love. Take our mistakes, our regrets, our pain, and our messiness to bring your healing. Magnify the gifts we offer before you today to spread your peace in this world. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And let us continue on now in a spirit of prayer. And so we pray. In this quiet space, O God, our hearts are open to you. These Lenten days give us pause to look up at your cross, to fix our eyes on your sacrifice, to experience your love poured out for us. We turn into your voice in these moments, and we hear you accepting us. We hear you loving us. We hear you calling us to step it up, to stand up for you in this world to proclaim in word and deed to an ever-changing culture that you matter more than ever. Good and gracious Lord, we think we want to follow you, to be changed by you, but we are perpetually hesitant. We are faithfully unsure. We know we want to follow you, not out of fear or desperate need for your mercy, but because we know you and love you and because this life journey is not all about us, but about you, our center and our source. Allow us the grace of a Lenten season where we might come to know you and in response, turn our hearts over to you. Allow us the courage, the strength, the foolishness, whatever it takes to turn our lives over to you. You gift your church with this special season set apart to look up from all our things, to cease our striving and quietly walk with you to Golgotha to arrive there and receive your undying love for us. In the shadow of the cross, in our approach to Good Friday, do not let us turn away, but help us to ponder the love you offer, a love for this world that so beautifully reflects your grace. God of the oppressed, we bring to you the broken ones, the forgotten ones, the exploited ones, and the abused ones. Bring freedom and release, love and compassion to damaged hearts and souls. God of the distressed, we bring to you the grieving ones, the hurting ones, the suffering and wounded ones. Bring wholeness and healing, comfort and relief to broken bodies and minds. God of the dispossessed, we bring to you the lonely ones, the homeless ones, the thirsty and tired and penniless ones. Bring hope and sustenance, physical and spiritual food, to hungry bodies and souls. This day we intercede for the people of Venezuela, the people of Syria, people in cities plagued by gun violence, people who are picking up their lives strewn across the earth by tornadoes that have taken so much. Come, Lord Jesus, in the midst of tragedy and suffering, and make yourself known. These Lenten days give us pause to look at you and to see your sacrificial life, to hear your compelling voice, to love you deeply and without reservation, to take up our crosses and follow you. But we also heed your request that we look inward at our faithfulness, at our self-pity, at our sin. Transform us during this uncertain season, both in faith and in life, into people of life, of deep faith, who courage, 
courageously, boldly live for you. Help us, O God, to laugh and to share what is so meaningful, the gift of faith of one another, of family and friendship, and the gift of serving you. In the name and power of the one who suffered for us and lives for us, Jesus our Lord, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.